You are now checked in to Stand Up New York Labs. Oh, yeah. I'm outside after their festival talk. All I are badges in their protest wall. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Free Speech. We're at Stand Up New York Labs in a secret location right above Stand Up New York on 78th and Broadway. Uh, 236 West, 78th, I believe. It's se- the secret where it is on this floor. Could be at the front, could be at the back. We're not. Maybe, maybe you have to go upstairs, maybe you don't. We're not divulging that. Hint. Uh, we're here with Lenore Skenazy. Uh, rhymes with crazy. That's not a coincidence. Uh, my problem. I think with, it is a coincidence. Uh, is it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I you've think had a, they, a long history <laughs> of mental illness. Well, that's true. But the name was, you know, before me. Generations of Skenazies who were probably less crazy. We'll see. So you don't. <laughs> we haven't done that. Ben Affleck go back. Yeah, really. Thing. Nobody had a slave. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think. Uh, it's hard. I, I'm so familiar with you and your work that I, I take for granted that everyone else knows. But let's just do a dummies quick guide. This is the author of Free Range Kids, the biggest advocate in the country of the safety last mentality. <laughs> safety second. <laughs> <laughs> where she, we have to stop helicopter parenting. She uh, became a household name uh, a few years ago when she let her son ride the subway alone. She at became, age nine. At age yeah. nine. She was known as the world's worst parent. World's worst mom. Nobody cares about the dads. Right. Right. And uh, since then, you've got your own show. Your books fly off the shelves. Uh, yeah, let's say that. <laughs> there, go, there goes another one. They're a fun read. Free oh, range you. kids yeah, is, yeah. is you. It, you just you, you. You're coming home on the train, and you go, "Oh, good! I can't wait to get back to free range kids." Thanks. A lot of books I read are nonfiction, and I go, "Oh, great! Back to work," you know, <laughs> right? Because it's economics and. And Even I'm not economics. that smart, so it's a real Even chore. Slower, yeah. I just finished this book, uh, Freedom uh, for the Thought We Hate. Oh, that's a great name. Wow, that's cool. And it's just list after list of cases, precedent-setting cases on the First Amendment in America. Mm-hmm. Nazis marching in Skokie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I became depressed when it was time for bed because I had to get back to that <laughs> that workbook. Um, on the so other hand, it hastes that, sleep. That's who you are. Yeah. Uh, why don't you update us with the latest news? Tell us oh. about your show and you're uh, well, very busy. Sh- can, can I tell you about the show in, let's see. So it was on Discovery Life and all 13 episodes aired. And then it supposedly did well in its strange time spot, which was Wednesday mornings at 10. And um, now it's resting. And then they're going to bring it back as reruns. And that's World's Worst Mom, where I go to the homes of extremely anxious parents, um, each week a different parent, and help them let go. And before I did the show, I didn't realize how incredibly easy it is to get people to change. I, I had no <laughs> idea. It's, it's strange. You'd think it would take forever. And, I, and even when I was doing the show, I, I went to one family where the mom was still spoon-feeding her 10-year-old boy. What? Yeah, yeah. That was that was the first family. I was like, what is right? I'm not a psychologist, right? I'm a reporter, right? Yeah. Well, that's a form of abuse. And, and I think the irony of this helicopter parenting is and you see this in college with these trigger warnings and all this stuff. Oh, yeah, we can get when you those. put yeah. a bubble around a child for their whole life, it's it, mental and physical are not that different. So if you were to literally put a kid in a bubble his whole life, right, that would be his first day at school, kidnapping. he's going to catch a serious cold. He might die. His immune system's going to be crap. And we're doing the same thing physically and mentally to these kids. That's a form of abuse. Well, the thing about these parents is I didn't consider them abusive because I really understood them. I mean, ironically enough, I totally felt for these parents who, so there was another mom who bought her son a, um, a skateboard. He was desperate for a skateboard, but he could only ride 
it on um, the grass. He had to stand on it <laughs> on the grass. And then another mom who had a bunch of kids, but her oldest one was a 13-year-old boy. Whenever they went out anywhere, the kids together, and the boy, even the 13-year-old, had to go to the bathroom. She took him in the ladies' room with her. Wow. Yeah. You see, yeah. that's, I mean, my first instinct is is LOL with that, <laughs> but it also is horrific. In real life, you get bullied, uh, not just by a wedgie, <laughs> Work, the, being an entrepreneur is being bullied. You know, if you own a restaurant, you're getting right, you bullied get by the. To, you yeah, have to get slings. used to punches in the face. Well, you know what? That sort of was getting used to something horrible because there you are slinking into the ladies' room, you know, surrounded by <laughs> ladies and you, and he was tall. Um, but, anyways, what I wanted to say is I, I sort of empathize with these ladies because, um, and it was for the most part, it was more moms that were scared than dads, but sometimes they were equally scared. Um, and you know, when you live in a society like ours, which is shoving fear down our throats every single second of the day, you know, whether it's, you know, the ISIS crisis or you flip the channel and there's like, you know, it's the 32nd anniversary of J.C. Dugard being kidnapped or Eitan right. Pats or Adam Walsh or um, when you hear these stories constantly, it feels like they're immediate. It feels like they happened yesterday. It feels like they happened around the corner and you start thinking that your kids are in constant danger because that's the only way you see kids on TV is in danger. They're either, unless you're on, I guess, Disney, and then you're in danger becoming Miley Cyrus at some point. But basically, you're, you see kids being um, kidnapped, raped, and murdered because that's entertainment. So once you start feeling that way, you think it you must keep your kid with you at all times and that if they go in the men's room, they'll never come back out again or that if you don't feed them, they'll choke or if you give them a skateboard, they're going to crack open their head. And so... All I did in the show and all I try to do for, for my whole life these days is let reality get through a little crack. And the way I did it on the show was um, I took the kids away from the mom and I said, go, go down the block and have a lemonade stand. Go wild. That's what I did to the 13-year-old. You know, you and your brothers have a lemonade stand down the block. And the mother's sitting there the whole time like this, and she's angry, and she's mad, and her mother, the grandmother, is there saying, if anything happens to those kids, I'm, gonna, I'm oh, not going to really? blame I'm not gonna blame you, Lenore. I'm going to blame my daughter because those babies are children, and you're going to let them get hurt, and I love them very much. And somehow love and worry are equated. The more you worry, the better a parent you are. Well, it, it, and that's different cultures, too. I feel like well, in Jewish culture, that's more of a thing than in, say, Chinese culture. Um, or black I'm not culture. Sure. Well, the, the, I'm Jewish, and the family I was dealing with in that case was black, and so I, I don't even know where the where the lines get drawn. But in the twelve, in the thirteen families that I dealt with, they were every color and religion, and there was just one family that didn't change. Let me just tell you what happens. Okay, sorry. So the kids come back, right? They've been gone for an hour and a half down the block where she couldn't see them, even though she was looking out the window. And they run back and they say, "Guess what, mom? We had so much fun." And there's these three kids, and they're sort of tumbling around, and they're joyous, and they're saying, "We made twenty." and we forgot to put the sugar in and it was so crazy and then we stole it door to door and they're just, they're so effusive and they're so grateful that they finally got out and they're so happy that they did something by themselves that the mom who was like this to me before was like, your love for your kids trumps the fear. When you see your kids happy and you see them growing up, it's sort of like when you see your kid walk for the first time, you don't say, oh, I wish he was still crawling. I wish he would go back to crawling. You don't wish them to go back because you're proud that, like, look what my kid can do. And that's the key to changing parents. I mean, really, I saw it myself, and then I saw it. I do this program in schools now called the Free Range Kids Project, where I have the teachers tell the kids, go home and ask your parents if you can do one thing 
that you feel you're ready to do that for one reason or another you haven't done yet, whether that's walk the dog, make dinner, get yourself to school, ride your bike to the library. And because it's endorsed by the school and not crazy skinazy, um, <laughs> the parents usually say yes. And then the kid goes and does something by themselves and they come home and I just, I, I do surveys before and after on the parents and the parents are like, this was a light bulb moment or I didn't realize how grown up my child was and I'm proud or now we're doing more things. I stopped doing my homework with my kid because I saw that he could go and get his own haircut. So really the fear is superimposed and when parents see the reality of their kid growing up, the pride and the joy that they feel that their kid is blossoming actually it, it dissipates the fear. I mean, I, I printed out letters from all the moms from the TV show that they had sent me long after the cameras were gone. Now my son is going to BMX bike camp, said the mom who wouldn't let her son ride a bike. You know, now my son goes by himself with the friends to the mall, said the mom who wouldn't let him go to the bathroom by himself. So all you need is a chance to see your kid for who they really are and your community, and it changes you. So that's it. We have to get rid of the fear, and the way to get rid of fear is through love and pride in your own kid. Well, that brings up the question of what started all this. Like, if it bleeds, it leads is mm -hmm. what drives the media mm -hmm. from when we come back, toasters that kill. Right. And that's a good, I mean, John Stossel sort of became a libertarian and left ABC because he was sick of he constantly realized, yeah. lying about deadly toasters. Right. Or wasn't it um, the, the hoses, you know, should your child be drinking from the hose? It's like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. The answer is yes. yes. Um, but if you think of it as like, well, over the course of 20 million years, if you drank from that hose and then ate it, you know, there would be some toxins in your child's bloodstream. So right. They always say that there's mer mercury in the water and there's this. And you, you're like, well, how much? Right, right, right. I think the standards for um, lead in toys is at the point where it's like if you scooped up virgin dirt from the top of a mountain in New Hampshire, oh, I'm sorry, not for the kids. Right. You know, and well, it's not like anyone- in Australia, I heard they're taking dirt pills to try to get their immune systems up again. Oh, you know, I once sat next to this guy on a plane and he was like basically peddling dirt pills, but he had a better name for them. Um, <laughs> but the idea was that we are so, you know, you've heard the hygiene hypothesis, right? Which is that um, why are allergies going up? One theory um, and asthma, is that um, by living in such a hygienic um, world that we've created for ourselves, um, our, our bodies uh, don't have a chance to learn how to react to you know, good and bad stimuli, you know, right. whether that's germs or whatever. And so they overreact to everything as if it's bad because they never had that exposure. And I, I always think of that as a perfect analogy for stranger danger. If you tell your kids, never talk to anyone, everybody's bad, they'll never develop any kind of street smarts or sixth sense or spidey sense, whatever you want to call it, because they're not spiders, um, because um, you've taken away every chance for them to develop. And, and I think when you're talking about helicopter parenting being a form of abuse, um, I don't think it's deliberate abuse, but I no. think um, not allowing your kids to be part of the world um, doesn't give them the chance to learn the things that children have learned every generation until now. And and there's this sort of leap to getting raped and kidnapped and murdered, and but there's all kinds of conflict before that that should be part of your life and isn't bad. Like I, I talked to this Jehovah's Witness once and they told me that their version of heaven is we're all 23 again. We're here on earth and a tiger will come up and you'll just say, hey, buddy, and maybe give him a chocolate bar. There's no conflict at all. And I said, what about boxing? And they go, if the two fighters had no animosity, then there 
we could do it if it was just sport. But if there was animosity, we, it wouldn't exist in our heaven. And I'm like, but that's the best part. Yeah, right. Like falling and wiping out is fun. The danger, we used to, when we were kids in the 70s, it was just before BMXs came out. And they, <laughs> they had these motorcycle bikes that had shocks and they had fake gas tanks and stuff. Okay. And it was meant to look like a dirt not, bike. Not in my life, but go on. <laughs> <laughs> I'm talking 77 now. I was alive, but I never heard of what you're talking about because I was a girl. Yes. And still am. You got you guys were allowed to watch us, and that was exciting too. We didn't <laughs> in your <laughs> dreams. <laughs> we would go off these jumps, and I remember being in the air for so long it was almost boring. <gasps> like wow. I should have brought a magazine, <laughs> no. just soaring wow. through the sky, wow. almost touching the telephone. And sometimes you'd wipe out, and that was part of the whole thrill. I remember Clinton Bedecki had a branch that went in here and came all the way out here. That was. That's why Thrilling. we didn't watch. That's why we didn't watch. That's really awful. Um, <laughs> but what you're talking about is actually something I bring up in my lectures is after I've gone through like, how do we get so afraid? And of course, there's the 24-hour news cycle and we live in a litigious society and we live in an expert society and experts basically are there to tell you you're doing everything wrong right. to the point where you start thinking, am I doing everything wrong? And then there's the whole marketplace, which if they can make you afraid of something, then they can sell you something to make you less afraid. So Yeah, let's narrow in. I like getting to the bottom of things. Let's narrow in on the cause here. There's, okay. there's litigation, right? That's litigation. why there's no diving boards anymore. Yeah, and also in Richland, Washington, there's no swings. And in Spokane, they're getting rid of the swings. I don't know wow. what's happening in Washington. You know, the problem in Washington is like actually out there in the in the other Washington. It's a real crazy. challenge to hurt yourself on a swing. They don't think so because the the studies that they they cite show that swings are the most dangerous element on a playground. And I think, of course, yeah, that's because fine. there's nothing left. You've gotten rid <laughs> yeah. of the the merry-go-rounds. There's no teeter-totters left. And I, I keep thinking like, first they came for the teeter-totter and I said nothing. Right. Then they yeah. came for the merry-go-rounds. No, that's a totally valid point. I mean, one thing I like about you that I, I don't think people get is this isn't... Uh, some uh, housewife bickering about safety valves on doors or drawers. Mm -hmm. This is not, it might sound like minutia if you don't have kids, but this is indicative of a much bigger right. problem. Mm -hmm. we, we've become so physically weak, we're mentally weak too, and we can't handle certain thoughts. Right. And when we rate, like these kids go up in college, they're in college now, mm -hmm. and the safety generation is going, I can't handle this thought, I can't handle this speaker. Uh, I was just reading a thing about Harvard where they had this rape survey, because they got to get their rape number up for Title IX to get money. So they're what do you going, mean? What do you mean? Well, Title IX is, is a way to fund colleges to help fight rape. Okay. But what it does is it creates a financial incentive to find cases because if you don't have any cases, you're not getting any money. So now they're putting out these things going, do people keep asking you for dinner and drinks and it's driving you crazy? And <laughs> on that same form, it says, if this triggers anything, uh, you can uh, go, here's a $5 Amazon gift certificate. Uh, wow. Which is less money than the Title IX money. Anyway. Less this money is, than the dinner. <laughs> this is, yeah, that safety kid who's on the grass skateboard yeah. ends up in great schools like Harvard mm -hmm. and ends up making policies like let's remove diving boards. So the drawer is not a little deal. No, I know. I mean, one of the things that sort of changed my outlook, I guess, was when I started realizing that if you hear the word it's for the safety of the children, um, you sort of have to run. Uh, because anything, any law can be passed, any rule can be enforced if it's for the safety of somebody. And I get the Consumer Product Safety Commission uh, listserv. You should get it. <laughs> you know, you'd have material for a year. Um, and in the past two months, they recalled, um, 
They recalled some yarn because when you knit it into anything, it could... A knife? Unravel. Oh, really? It could unravel. And of course, any unraveled yarn, which I thought it started out as. But anyway, somehow unraveled yarn is a... Health hazard. It could strangle you. It's a strangling hazard. Yes, strangulation hazard. And then they also recalled... Wait, I got to tell you this. Just let me tell you the other wonderful thing that they recalled, which was 100 and either 20 or 40,000 children's sweatshirts. Why? Because of the drawstring. No, I knew you'd say that. Ha, ha, ha. No, you're wrong. They, they're they always recalling the drawstring ones and also always recalling anything that's, um, that isn't inflammable material. But in the in this case of the, the, um, the sweatshirts, it was that the pull tab on one zipper out of the 140,000 sweatshirts had come off posing... Choking hazard. Yes! All things are choking hazards. All things are, like all dimes. Are choking all dimes. These when, are when strangulation to, yeah, hazards. Yeah, yeah, no, you're surrounded by that's why that's why it's uh, you know for older people, you know, that's why they can serve liquor here because nobody under 21 is allowed into a place like this. But the point is when you're talking about how safety culture creeps in and starts making us nonsensical. I mean, so it's better that we throw out 140,000 sweatshirts in some landfill somewhere than that we wear them and and lose jobs and all kinds of other yeah. economic problems with that yeah i'm not sure about the losing jobs because then somebody has to make another hundred and forty thousand sweatshirts but there does seem <laughs> to be some colossal waste and a huge disconnect between real safety which i am all in favor of i love helmets and car seats and seat belts and if you were helmets my kid for i would never let you get one of those horrible death traps that you were riding as a kid because i'm a nervous mom that's the other thing i'm a nervous mom but if i'm considered the apotheosis of daredevil and i I'm nervous and I give people when when you have a baby shower the gift I bring is a fire extinguisher. So I think I'm like really safety conscious. So if I'm considered wild, what has happened to society? Yeah. I always say that when people call when I'm seen as some sort of alpha male tough guy, <laughs> I'm a dumb wimp. And in this day no and comment. age that's Clint Eastwood. <laughs> uh have you ever thought what if something goes wrong? Like if yes. if those black kids who had the lemonade stand if they got hit by a car it your whole career would be over and your whole message might get lost yeah um i i thought about that um sort of obsessively for a while because it does scare me and i never guarantee complete safety i wish i could if i could I might change my whole message but there is no such thing as absolute safety and i i try to keep that in perspective but five years ago um i started a holiday called take our children to the park and leave them their day. Um, and there's another one coming up, and I'll tell you about it in a second. But the first take our children to the park and leave them their day, um, I spent, you know, off the record, I spent it in my bathroom. Just, just, <laughs> I could not, I kept thinking, like, something's going to happen, and, and then they're going to blame me, and they're going to say, see, Lenore, you said I could send my child out and hit by a car, pulled off the street by somebody. And, and it didn't happen because those things are rare. And, um, and then I've had... Five of those holidays since then. And this year, um, I'm having Take Our Children to the Park and Let Them Walk Home by Themselves Day. is coming up on May 9th, uh, the day right before Mother's Day. And um, somebody wrote to my site and said the best comment, which is, you know, this is obviously letting them walk home from the park is in honor of the Métives and support of the Métives, the Maryland family um, arrested twice for letting their children walk home from their local park. And, and somebody said, who would have thought it would become an act of civil disobedience to send your kids outside to play. Yeah, amazing. Well, I think that with in regards to an accident happening, we need more Lenores because right now she's 
holding the you, the entire burden <laughs> is on your shoulders. No, no, no. There's so many people who are believe in what I believe in now, and frankly, because of the Métis, there have been. Uh, you know, I think the, the the Washington Post, you know, can't go a day without writing about this story. They've done over 30 stories oh, on great. the Maryland family being arrested for letting their kids run outside, walk outside safely outside, two of them in broad daylight on a sunny Sunday. Um, <laughs> in the suburbs. Right, in the suburbs, right. Um, I th- what's What I've seen is almost an outpouring of support for them and saying, you know, why is, even if you wouldn't send your kids to the park, at ages 10 and 6. Why would uh, why would the government concern itself with somebody who does choose to? You know, I'm sure, you know, nobody thinks that anybody else is parenting exactly right. You know, right. it's like, I wouldn't feed him that. I wouldn't put her in that clothes, whatever. That school's terrible. Um, but anything other than putting a child in actual, immediate, and obvious, indisputable harm should not be a, a question of, government interfering at all absolutely not well what age though what let's get specific okay what about a five-year-old and a six-year-old crossing three streets to get to a park in the city well there's a couple of caveats for that um one is uh most of the world sends their children to school walking on their own at age seven so that seems like not a crazy age to let kids walk um i also usually tell people to think back to their own childhood and like, for instance, I was walking to school at age five, and the crossing guard back then was a 10-year-old, you know? That's how it used to be. And I, actually, I married mine. That's another story. Um, you married your crossing I, I guard? I married my crossing guard. <laughs> wow. I did. Not then. Right. People think, oh, my God, that's what I don't want my kid to do. You know, it's like, he wasn't 30 then. Um, but uh, the crime rate was higher when I was growing right. up. The crime rate was higher when most of today's parents were growing up. We're at a 50-year crime low in America. And sometimes people say, well, it's low crime because we keep our kids inside. And it's, well... It's low crime against everyone. It's low, low burglary, low rape, low murder. Everything is down, and we're not helicopter parenting our parents. So crime is down. So if you think that it was not crazy for your own mom to send you out at age X or Y, um, it's not crazy for you to do it too if you're in similar circumstances. If you are talking about a, you know, a six-lane highway, that's different from I was walking suburban streets to get to Ramona. Right. School. Well, that brings up uh, the question of, where is it best to raise your kids? I mean, my kids are right in the city, mm-hmm. very busy uh, in Brooklyn, and it looks it could be St. Mark's Place, the area we are, tourists everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, in New York, I talked to kids who grew up in Manhattan, and they say, we were so jealous of you suburbanites, because that's where I grew up, because every date we had was a play date. And you guys could just, you'd leave after breakfast, and you'd come home when the streetlights went out. And I'm starting to feel like a terrible parent, because my kids are either in the city, or we go upstate to the country, mm-hmm. where they're in the middle of nowhere, and they're still not playing. So they get 90% of their playing in at school, yeah. and the rest of it is just iPads and... I mean, we try to restrict the screens, but there's still always too many screens going on. Right. Well, it's really, I mean, I'm always on a screen too. So the idea of me getting mad at my kids for always being on a screen is a hard one. But um, there's a couple things that I'm starting to do that I hope will get more people, more kids out playing with each other. One is that free range kids project, because if you do it at a school, um, then the school kids get used to walking to school again or hanging out after school and it just becomes renormalized and right. so that's one thing um, another thing is I started a, this thing um, you go to freerangefriend.com or if you go to my blog which is free range kids it's on there too and all you do is you you put in your zip code 
And if you want, you can put in the years that your kids were born. And then you can find other people within a mile, five miles, 10 miles. And it's like a dating site, so you don't find out anybody's name or actual email or phone number or anything. It's just a way to like, hi, I found you on Free Range Friend. My kids go to this school, and they have Wednesday afternoons free. How about you? And oftentimes people say, I'd like to let my kids go outside, but there's nobody else for them to play with. And so this is a way to find other like-minded people who would like to all have their kids outside but can't find them. That's brilliant. So you say... Uh, Joey's going to be at the park Wednesday at 5. Send your kid to the park. So the, both these kids go alone to the park and then hang out there and then come home. Right. Or if you're nervous about that because you don't know who the other person is first, you meet the other mom at Starbucks or you have everybody come over to, you know, you go to the pool or whatever. There's, you know, you can put in as many safeguards as you want because a lot of people want safeguards. But yeah, basically, I mean, that's what the whole take our children to the park and let them, you know, walk home alone day is. So my kids would look out the window and we lived in a 37 story apartment building here in Manhattan and and they would look down on the courtyard where there's no cars and say oh there's nobody playing outside and I kept imagining there's four buildings like this over a courtyard everybody else looking out the window saying oh there's nobody outside oh there's nobody outside and so <laughs> so by having a specific date and time for this take our children to the park day which is 10 a.m. on that Saturday morning of May 9th um, then you with your kids who go to X school and my kids go to a different program and your kid is one year older so he's in a different soccer program than my kid. So they never met before. Finally, they're all there and we leave. We leave. That's the key because then they have to figure out how to play. And I really thought watching my kids grow up, they sort of didn't know how to play the way I did. You know, they didn't know how to just like form like amoeba like some people together and you do something and then one of you goes off and does this and then some right, other kids. Right, yeah. And I just want to renormalize that and I keep thinking about different ways to do it. And so there's, you know, there's the Take Our Children in the Park Day, there's the Free Range Friend Day, there's the Free Range Kids Project in the school, which brings it back to normal. One lady who has, I was speaking at a very fancy private school in San Francisco and um, the people liked the talk. And so afterwards, we met in the dean's office or the headmistress office, whatever it was. And we all sat around this gigantic table. And the idea they came up with is really simple. It's like Wednesday afternoons. It won't be official, but Wednesday afternoons, why doesn't everybody pick up their children two hours after school is over? The school isn't liable because it's not a school program, but everybody's going to have that Wednesday afternoon free so they can hang out for a couple hours. And that's like, that's how you have to start. You have to give them two hours on a Wednesday afternoon. So you're not a bad parent if you raise your kids in the city. You just have to fix the city. You have to fix the mentality that says if anything goes wrong, it's because you're a terrible parent, so don't let anything happen at all. Don't let your kids have any freedom whatsoever. Because every time I talk to other urban parents about it, they we all say, wait, does that utopia we had even exist in the suburbs anymore? We Absolutely used to get not. on our bikes and just go door to door until someone was home yes, and then know, ride out to the, the forest mm -hmm. and, you know, make forts and stuff. But do kids in the suburbs do that, do that anymore? Not from what I'm hearing. You know, I don't see the suburbs very much because I do live in the city. Um, when I would go to visit my brother-in-law, in the suburbs of the far suburbs of Chicago, um, mostly empty playgrounds. Or if there are children in a playground, they're all in a uniform because they're in some organized activity. The idea of kids just like stand by me, you know, getting yeah, on their bikes yeah. and, and getting run over by <laughs> trains, um, almost. <laughs> that I, I don't know if that exists anymore. Sometimes people write and say, we still have a free range kids neighborhood and people are riding around all the time. But a lot of times people say, I can't find anyone else for my kids to play with. That's amazing. Well, one of my favorite parts of your book is about that uh, Italian dude. Yeah. Who, do you want to talk about him for a second? You can you talk remember? about him too. Um, 
I tried to explain that, like, we think that times have changed, um, and I've just we've just discussed how times are safer. But I also want to say, like, the species hasn't changed. I mean, kids are capable of so much. Right. And the example that I gave in my book was I just was looking through old social histories, and this was a guy. Um, who was born in Italy, orphaned, ended up at an orphanage, and at age eight or nine, he was taken by a, a guy who came and said, oh, I'm his grandfather, and the boy didn't recognize him, but he was basically Fagin. The, this, this grandfatherly person took him and then put him into a, a group of pickpockets and beggars. And um, at one point, he overheard Fagin. I can't, you know, Fag- I can't even make a funny joke about what Fagin would sound like in an Italian name. <laughs> Fagio. Um, uh, heard him and somebody else talking about how he wasn't making his numbers and they were going to cripple him because then he would look more pathetic and be able to get more money. Right. And he got so scared that he and another friend um, who was in the same group um, ran away. And this is about what, age nine at age this point. Age around nine. And they ended up at, or 10 perhaps by then. And I think his friend was 12. So that was a, an older kid. And remember, this is the age that you can't stay alone at your home in Illinois until you're 14. Um <laughs> So they ran away, and they ended up at a, at a seaside town, and they somehow found a fisherman's family that took them in, and they helped fish, you know? And then eventually, and, and I think the guy sort of fell in love with the man's daughter. He sort of seemed to be writing about her later on kind of longingly. But anyways, at age 16, and I don't know if it was 16 and 14 or 16 and 18, they took a ship. They'd saved their money, and they took a ship to America. And then they ended up working in the sewers for a while, and finally they ended up um, being boot blacks. And then they opened up their first boot black stand, you know, shoe shine stand, and then another, and then another. And here he was, like 19 years old, you know, with a cigar. Now I'm considered a swell. And you know, he's dating, and the and his friend got married, who would have been 21 at then. And that's that's not what we think kids are at all capable of. I mean, we are, like I said, you think that at age 14, you still have to have a chaperone in Illinois to stay home and watch TV. So I find it weird that what we think of as helping children is so insulting. We so underestimate them. There's never been a generation on earth that underestimated children as much as we do now under the guise of keeping them safe. We keep them infants. We keep them down. We give them no rights. They can't even walk home from the park without getting stopped because they don't have a right to be outside because they're subhuman. They are humans. And that's what Free Range Kids says. Free Range Kids says, give childhood back to the kids and watch what they can do. And when you see what they can do, you will burst with pride and you will let them go back out. Yeah, like if you watch that show Intervention, they always say uh, she's a cocaine addict and her life's ruined. What happened? There must have been a traumatic event. And it'll be, oh, some guy took a picture of her tits in high school and everyone in high school saw it. Ergo, her life is ruined now and she's going to be a pathetic drug addict. But then you look at this guy, the Italian dude. He was been on his own since he was his entire life. Yeah. He gets keep, keeps getting thrown into the worst possible scenarios where men are going to break his legs in yeah. multiple places. Yeah. And now he, I think he has a chain of barbershops in the Bronx. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, it's, he's probably dead by now. It was around 1909. But yeah, <laughs> I mean, the fact of the matter is a lot of us have grandparents or somebody in our family who came over at a very young age. My grandparents came over around 16 and didn't speak the language and didn't have any money and didn't have any prospects. And you know, I don't want to say sink or swim because it is easy to sink. And I'm not saying that there's something great about being put into hard circumstances. I'm glad I grew up in a nice upper middle class. Well, don't poo poo it right away. There are some. But, there is some real asset to suffering. Well, there's some asset to people believing in you and you being allowed to prove yourself. Um, one of the other things I ask when I give talks is, um, what's one thing that you love to do as a kid that you don't let your own kids do? 
and people heroin. Get, yeah, there you go. Yeah, or those silly bikes that you were on. Um, it's not a silly bike. Yeah, it a was a bike. normal, <laughs> huge bike that had shocks on the front and the back. It wasn't magic. You had to pedal it. Oh, you did? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like made to look thing. like a motorbike. Okay. Yeah. It was the greatest You know what I did to make it into a motorbike, quote unquote motorbike, is I put a, a balloon on the back. Do you remember you could put a balloon oh, yeah, or on you, and, you, and then the Bobby spokes would make a noise in. and Oh, this had motocross treads. It was the factory made it like a motorbike. See, in my day, we put a balloon on the back, you know, and we liked it. Well, I wanted to ask you about your day. What was your... My day was What was your childhood like? Where was it? It was in suburban Chicago, Wilmette, Illinois. And what would... You'd wake up, you'd have breakfast. Let's do a Saturday with Lenore. Saturday, wake up, have cookies and milk for breakfast. Um, And this is when I lose all credibility. Then I would go and either read a book in my room or go outside and look for four-leaf clovers for hours. Oh, boy. She had an exciting childhood there. Did you have siblings? Yes. And they wouldn't hang out with she you? She would have more fun. She, she would go popular. do crazier stuff? She would hang out with kids. Like there was always a, a a kickball game in front of our house at some point during the day and she would play kickball and I'd be there looking for the four-leaf clovers. Now you know. Yeah, I think, yeah. I think parents, if, you, if your kid has never had a cast and he's six or seven, you have failed him. If you, I'm at first name basis with everyone at ER. <laughs> My kids are always there and and. You it, like you you get uh, a concussion is no big whoop, they they bonk their head they barf you go there you get a cat oh scan God, make horrible. sure there's no internal bleeding yeah and then they are fine all my kids have had concussions well I'm happy to say my kids haven't because I'm a better mom um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm a terrible mom <laughs> you are really yeah you could be the world's worst mom but there's <laughs> an evolution it. here like you, you look at the 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 war generation right so they went through the Great Depression. Yeah. And their thing with the boomers was just, you're lucky you have food. Right. I was dying for food my whole life. Get right, out of my right. face. You're not allowed in the house. Right. At any, unless it's dark out, you're not allowed in here. Get mm-hmm. out, you can sta- sit on the steps outside. And that was because in comparison, they had so much suffering. Then the baby boomers came along and they were pretty shitty to us Gen Xers in that they didn't I, really... I hate to say it. I think I am a baby boomer. So watch what you're saying. Baby boomers are terrible parents. There we they go. invented divorce. <laughs> They traumatize Gen X. This is why Gen Xers aren't having kids anymore. Because they go, well, I saw that what the divorce did to me. I don't want Didn't we just say that a little Sturm and Drang is okay and kids can rise above that? Now you're saying divorce is traumatizing them forever? Yeah, good point. Good point. Yeah, but okay. it's, it's traumatizing. Like I don't mean they're sitting in the shower every night shaking. They're just going, they're just not, having not kids. for me. Right. Family has been sullied, dirtied. Mm. They're not traumatized. That was the wrong word. But mm-hmm. it's it, the brand has been damaged. And then we have these Gen Xers where they go, that was horrible. And they have started overdoing it. Now, it could be litigation. It could be the media. But it's conceivable that this is some sort of biological evolution. Not that fast. No, it's not. I mean, that's what I keep saying. I feel like we're still the same species. And there have always been weird, terrible things and fine things that have happened in pretty much every generation on Earth. And you could always pinpoint and say, oh, it's that or it's that. I just think it's... I think it's the, there's a lot of money in um, America today. And when there's a lot of money, then there's a lot of things that come along to try to get that money from you. I mean, this is... Maybe. I'm I'm pro-capital, pro-capitalism. But if you look at, like, if you ever go to Babies Are Us, the store Babies Are Us, Mm -hmm. you ever been to one? 
Yeah, which babies are, when a baby was me, there was like no babies are us because you didn't need the 10,000 items that are there now. But there's right. so many items there, and this is what I'm talking about, the marketplace, that are there um, that you need for peace of mind to know that your child is safe. And it was all like, oh, I thought my kid was safe without this monitor. And it's like, no, you need this monitor. And they sell baby monitors that you can put on your baby's, like you, you strap it to the baby's foot. And um, <laughs> while... So like, you can track them miles away? Well, it's a baby, so they can't even walk yet. <laughs> exactly. Um, but if they were miles away, yes, presumably you could track them. Um, but what the monitor is checking is your baby's um, heart rate, temperature, movement, and blood oxygen level. Oh, that's incredible. Yeah. I never, I never heard about yeah. that. Yeah. And what they, they've changed the website, um, possibly because I mercilessly made fun of it. Um, I'd like to think that maybe they just realized it was crazy. But their, their website used to say, it's, this product is called the Owlet. O-W-L-E-T, like a cute little baby owl. And it says, just because you can see your, this is your kid in her crib when she's come home healthy and happy from the hospital. Okay, asleep. Just because you can see her little chest moving up and down doesn't mean she's getting enough oxygen. That's amazing, but... So if, was, if we weren't naturally evolving that way, that product wouldn't sell. I mean, it's a chicken or the egg here. Maybe the marketing is so effective because we are getting so incredibly soft. And maybe that's just part of evolution. Like, if you were to graph it, you'd see parents being less and less mean and less and less apathetic over the past hundred years. So I'm not saying your work is fruitless because you're going against biology. I, I love it that you're, if this is biology, I love that you're going against it and you should fight it. And we do have to stop helicopter parenting. But I'm starting to wonder if it's some sort of genetic trait that we've just developed over the years. I, I don't think genetics happens that fast. But um, in terms of, wait, there was something you were just saying. What has happened? I do think that, you know, there are definitely cultural shifts. And that's what we're talking about here. But but when we talk about helicopter parenting, um, you, I think, understand that it's not just helicopter parenting. I mean, that's why we're talking about the Consumer Product Safety Commission or um, Child Protective Services coming and knocking on the door of a family that let a, a child walk to school or play outside. It's, it's an entire society so obsessed with the idea that there should be zero risk that, that parents feel like they have to play into it. I mean, it's not just crazy helicopter parents. It's a society that's selling you the monitor. It's a society that's knocking on your door for letting your child go outside. It's a society that's recalling 140,000 sweatshirts because one of them had a zipper tab that fell off. So it all, the, the overarching idea here is that we are constantly thinking in terms of what terrible thing could, no matter how unlikely, that one tab off that one sweatshirt happen. Right. And to prevent it from happening is worth any cost. We can throw all those sweatshirts into the um, into a dump. You know, it doesn't matter. They, they recalled every crib um, that was a dropside crib. There were like 3 million cribs that were recalled because some children would die in cribs, which is terribly sad. But the idea is that now I'm sure they're dying in other cribs because that's sometimes what happens. And the idea that um, everything should be uh, absolutely zero danger, even if used incorrectly, even if used by a billion people on earth, nothing should ever go wrong, is a new one. Right. And it's making us crazy because nothing is that safe. Nothing is safe enough. Isn't there an element too here where these meddlesome rat bags, I like to call them, are- Who are we talking about? Are you talking about- The safety <laughs> My- people. 
you know, the people pushing these products. The safety people. That's a, it's a, that's a safety government. It's safety people. It's safety parents. Yeah, the, eth- the whole ethos of this is, it's it, like you see it in the war on boys, where boys can't go pew, pew, pew. Yeah. And they get, the zero talent. you know, sent home for yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. So it, it, it cause, and it's, the reason it's on a free speech show is because I think it's indicative of political correctness and this sort of milk toast watering down of American culture. But it also seems to be against patriotism and against, uh, you know, all these things that made the Western world great traditionally, like we just had soldiers walking on red high heel shoes so they can see what it's like to be a woman. We did? Yeah. ROTCs in uh, Arizona and Pennsylvania. It's called Walk a Mile in Her Shoes Day to raise awareness about sexual violence. So you had these ROTC cadets wearing that. And I, I feel like there's almost like this Western sabotage going on where they're trying to destroy patriarchy. They're trying to destroy well, Western I'm not, values. I'm not a huge fan of patriarchy as a woman, and, and I'd say a card-carrying feminist. But what I am a fan of is believing um, not in the worst-case scenario every time that every man doesn't, you know, doesn't care about rape or that everybody is in constant danger. I think that you know, in the end, what I really want is for everybody to sort of give each other a break Quit being terrified of everyone and everything and quit doing, I, I don't know if this is me just segueing unfairly to a point I wanted to make or not. <laughs> um, let's say it is. But what I call this problem is worst first thinking. And I don't know if you... Right, but it's directed towards men a lot. Like you look at the campus rape thing. That we may have found an area we disagree on. Because I no, see no, no, feminism I as a big part of this worst first thing where one in four men are raped. I mean, are rapists and... One in four college students will experience sexual assault is the fake statistic. And this whole idea of like, put your hand here. Can I get permission for this? Put your hand here. Can I get permission for this? No, I know. That's that's the benefit of the doubt thing, too. It's like if we assume that like most people are not out to rape each other, I think that's that's legitimate. I think we shouldn't assume that most men are rapists. And um, where I, you know, where I worry about the whole idea of, um, you know, thinking of everybody in terms of being a either very um, vulnerable and that one bad thought will cause them horrible trauma or b that everybody is rapacious literally rapacious those <laughs> are both cases of thinking of the worst case scenario that that a that people are always out to get each other and then b there's something about this idea of excessive vulnerability that makes me sad too because if you think that nobody can rise after something bad happens to them. And I'm not just talking about rape. I'm talking about being bullied. Look at Hiroshima. I'm talking about being... Look at Nagasaki. Right, right, right. It's, that's also, um, that's, that's not true. Thank God we are more resilient. And I'm not saying, therefore, anybody who doesn't recover and have a happy life after anything bad is not, you know, is, is them, themselves to blame. But I think if we always see um, everybody through the lens of victimhood and trauma and not recovery... It's it sort of lessens who they are. They don't want to be constantly seen as a victim. And I also think it's one of the reasons I think we have such long, this is going to sound strange, but such long um, incarceration, like such long sentences now and such harsh, harsh incarceration rates. And, you know, we have the highest um, rate of uh, incarceration in the world. We have, we have 5% of the world's population and 25% of its prisoners. And I, I'm... I don't have any evidence of this, but I sort of believe that if you think that once something bad happens to a person, they can never get better, 
that justifies you keeping the people in prison even longer because like she's never going to feel better so you're never going to get out but there's also an element there where there's some black culpability and they have taken on this victim complex and i live in a racist hellhole america's against me i can't get out of it so it, it creates an adversarial relationship with society where you end up sort of becoming a victim and saying, I'm going to be in the ghetto forever. I can't get out of it. America's too racist for me. This is a racist society. And that's why I think all this sort of uh, what purports to be anti-racism is really just damaging to blacks. If you tell the, the, the ghetto that they can make it out and they're not going to face racism at every turn, they're more likely to get out and succeed. God, I have no idea what I think about that. I think we do live in a racist society. I think there's... there's... Oh, we finally found something we disagree on. (laughs) Yeah, no, I think we definitely live in a racist society, and I think it is harder um, for... I think so, but what do I know? I'm white. I don't really know. I just feel like... you can look it up. I mean, it's... it's... That's something I don't think you can look up. No, that's a myth where you say, oh, you can't talk like that. You're white. It's white privilege. You don't know. Oh, I'm not saying that. I'm saying I really... um, What are you saying I I should look up that I would find out whether or not we live in a racist society? What would I look up? Uh, The cases of uh, affirmative action as opposed to qualified black accountants not getting jobs based on race. Yeah, but like when I was just reading this amazing article about how um, one in six black men or something has done time in prison or will do time in prison, there was some some statistic that actually made me sick that our society has somehow, and I don't know how, gotten to um, that point. That that's a that's a bad sign for a society. Right, but it might be the hopelessness we instill in these black men and tell them that they live in apartheid and they should be adversarial and they should give up and they should turn to crime and they should yell at the cops when they get arrested and say, fuck yeah, you, white I know, pigs. but there's so many other um, forces behind why we have such a horrible incarceration rate, particularly for blacks. Like, one of them is like, going back to my interest in more sort of the children's side of things, um, a lot of schools now have policemen in them instead of just... Uh, you know, the lady at the desk or, uh, or the coach with a whistle. And so if two kids are in a fight, in the old days, they would go to the principal. Now they get written up, that was a misdemeanor. Then it happens again, and it's like, oh, this guy's starting to get a rap sheet. And then finally, somebody's, you know, smoking a joint or whatever, and it looks like this is a horrible recidivist, when actually, if he hadn't been in a school, and the suburban schools are not as like this, with, with cops there, Marking, you know, giving them actual, um, I don't know, misdemeanors or whatever you call it, like coming up with a uh, a legal trail that sort of insinuates that they are, that legally insinuates that they're a miscreant. Uh, I think that that's one of the ways that more blacks do end up in jail. Yeah, but I could blame that on liberals too. What happened was... They start, <laughs> you can blame anything on liberals. They said there's, there's too much... Uh, there's, Blacks are getting too many detentions. Blacks are getting in too much trouble. Blacks are getting expelled too much at these schools. Their numbers are through the roof because they were behaving badly. And I think they were behaving badly because they didn't have dads. But anyway, they said, you got to get these numbers down. So the kids were getting away with, metaphorically, getting away with murder. So then they had to bring in cops because the teachers weren't punishing these kids. And next thing you know, you start with this greater good lie and it spirals out of control i agree there's always unintended consequences to all sorts of things that sound like they're going to be a great idea and then they end up doubling back on themselves and making things worse but 
Um, I don't think I can even, you know, have a good conversation about racism because I'm, I'm convinced it's there, and I know that there, it's a Gordian knot of what came first and how it affects people, and it still does seem like um, it's something real that is worth trying to combat, maybe not the ways we've done it already. The free market will handle it. Um, <laughs> Glad to, to hear it. Just wow, that's done. Phew. Well, charter right, schools right. in Harlem do way better than public schools in Harlem because the teachers have an incentive. They can get fired. They discipline the kids. And we had a guy here who started a bunch of char- charter schools in Harlem, and they are thriving, Who's much that? to the New York Times' chagrin. <laughs> Who started this? I can't say his name. Oh, because he it's uh, too hard. <laughs> <laughs> it is pretty hard, but a lot he, of vowels. He he had this PR thing where he's not allowed to talk about the school in specific, so he was just talking about charters, and I had to oh, okay. make him anonymous as education. But I just see a lot of sort of leftist sabotage going on in this, and, and I'm reminded if, to get away from race and talk about the young boys. Uh, Ch Summers, you know her, the oh Christina Hoff Summers, sure. yeah, and she was talking about this little boy mm-hmm. who had drawn a picture of. Uh, a pirate beheading a bunch of men. Oh, no. Now he's and on their the heads ISIS are lying watch down there. <laughs> and you're looking at the... And the, she called the parents in because it was just so violent. And you're looking at the picture and you're going, clothes are accurate, right? <laughs> Uniforms are accurate. They got the soldiers right. It looks like Washington. Uh, D.C. Pe- <laughs> people were getting beheaded. Oh, actually, Washington's a little post-pirate. But yeah, it, right, right, right. It's not, it's not uh, right. It's only metaphoric. It was <laughs> very historical looking and that did go on. And... Boys are more rambunctious. They're more violent. And to get back to the the teachers and and persecution, um, teachers have started punishing boys and including behavior as a punishment. So their marks are going down because behavior is included in this. But boys running around, getting up to mischief is part of their genetic makeup. It's who they are. And political correctness and this sort of helicopter parenting is demasculinizing boys and masculinizing girls and turning us into this strange feminist milk toast mess. Wow, that's a feminist milk toast mess of an argument. But let me say, <laughs> well, you, you Here, the boy I, got in trouble for the beheading drawing. That's terrible. That's terrible. That's deboying a boy. Will you at least concede that? I will concede that it is the thing. The thing that I talk about, which is worst first thinking. It's like, oh my God, a child has. Uh, drawn a bomb, a child has drawn a um, a beheading or a, a gun. That's almost as bad as if they were doing it. Imagine if they did. That's terrible. I mean, it all goes back to the the pop tart gun. Remember the boy? Yep. Who, you bit it into a pop. Who bit his pop tart or toaster pastry, as they said in the papers, um, into the shape <laughs> of a gun. And actually, he's such a terrible artist. He thought he was making a mountain. What an idiot. But anyway, <laughs> so not only was he suspended. But if you read the principal's letter that he sent home to the parents, all the parents, after that, it was, if anybody is in need of counseling after today's incident, there will be counselors available. And so this is what I think is really weird. I mean, the beheading story and this story, whether it's milk toasting or this or that, feminist masculinity, I have no idea. But what it is, is treating... Um, it's going to beyond the worst case scenario. It is going. It's treating fantasy as reality. Yes, and that's that's really where um, you know where I get back into the conversation because um, just because you can imagine something bad happening doesn't mean that you have to act as if it is. That's why the Métis children got picked up from walking home from the park. Nothing bad was happening, but imagine if there was a predator. This kid was drawing 
uh, beheading. Imagine if he really wanted to go and behead his uh, classmates. And um, the, the one that always gets me is that parents are constantly um, arrested now when they let their kids wait in the car, even during a short errand. Um, it's because oh, right, you yeah. can imagine the, the people who are arresting them can imagine what if they forgot them all day or what if the, a kidnapper came by and took them out of the car. So just because you can imagine something far-fetched happening doesn't mean you should react as if it is. Similarly, with the, with the pull tab, just because you can imagine, oh, my God, what if all the pull tabs fell off and all the children were eating them and they were all right. choking? You, the, once you start thinking that way, I call it fantasy as policy. Um, you can't have policy based on somebody thinking like, oh, I would never do that. That's too scary. What if something terrible happened? Because then you can't do anything. You can't walk out your house. Well, that's why I love you, why you're so pro-Second Amendment and pro-gun. Because I'm not so pro-Second Amendment You love gun. guns because you just argued a great case for them. You know, I don't talk about the Second Amendment because I just can't. I, what I like about free-range kids is... They can have guns. <laughs> Any gun. And by touche, I mean use a foil <laughs> and chop off my head. Right? What about BB guns for kids? You know, I actually never understood quite what a BB gun is. Is a BB gun a cap gun? I mean, really, I grew up a girl, right? It, it shoots a, a tiny little bullet that oh, I don't tiny know. Tiny bullet sounds bad. A little aluminum. Oh, you can get shot. If I took a, a handgun BB gun and shot myself in the face right now. Be a bad idea. I'd have to go and get calipers to pull it out. That would be fine. I mean, it's happened to me before. It's not a big whoop. We used to shoot each other in Canada. I'm looking at your face. We would shoot. It's right there. We would shoot each other as we ran across, like at a carnival type thing, but instead of ducks, it was us. And it, you'd wear three pairs of jeans and two hats and four jackets. It was very painful to get shot. But the mathematics of it was you'd only have to run twice, and you just get to shoot dudes all day, shoot at dudes. Is that okay? Like I said, <laughs> grew up looking for four-leaf clovers. But BB guns are cool. <laughs> Four-leaf clovers are really cool. I just think it's funny that we, we, we probably disagree on this, on feminism and the war no, on I boys and the feminist. Second Amendment. I am such a feminist. I'm not I, a feminist. I am. And I know, I'm saying so we disagree to, on that. Well, you should be a feminist because feminists want equal rights for women. That's yeah, they the got equal point. rights for women. Good, yay. <laughs> there. That's like saying I'm a humanist. I think humans should be able to live in the humans world. Humans should have equal rights with whatever. Well, right. you're talking about a cause that's done. I mean, as far as America goes. I don't think it's totally done. But I think that um, reinterpreting it to mean that um, hearing any argument about how our culture is going might be too much for somebody. That upsets me. I, I mean, I'm, I'm on record as like when there was the, uh, remember the Wellesley statue? That uh, there was a statue on campus of Wellesley, I think a year ago, maybe two years ago. Oh, the nude guy? He wasn't nude. He had, oh, yeah, he underwear, had underwear on. on. Yeah, and... And he wasn't a guy. That was the thing that killed me. People said, people were saying like, Wellesley should be a safe place. And it's like, it's not safe. The guy, you know, like. <laughs> he can't get you. Right. He's not, right, he's, he's standing where he is, you know. <laughs> Even if you went up to him there, he couldn't grab you. Um, so that's when, um, that's when I think about uh, people calling themselves feminists, that I don't think that is feminist to say we must get rid of this statue. It's too offensive, too triggering, too upsetting, too dangerous, because it's not dangerous. It's a statue. Um, but my brand of feminism, if you want to call it that, um, doesn't say that. But it does say we want equal rights. We want you to... You got them. Good. Well, sometimes we do and sometimes we don't. I mean, I think we literally have equal rights. And I think that sometimes, and I can't even think of an instance now, but I do feel like 
there are probably some instances when women aren't treated equally or fairly. And I think it's, will. and if I found them, when I see them, I'm happy to fight for them. And I'm sure there's many more cases of men going through that. I mean, assault, getting attacked, getting sued, committing suicide. Anyway, you and I probably disagree on feminism, might disagree on the Second Amendment, might disagree on what where the genetic impetus is for this evolution of human wimpiness. <laughs> but the, wimpy the gene. beauty of suddenly the wimpy gene has asserted itself <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, epigenetically yeah. in one generation. That'd be interesting. Okay. Yeah. Um, but what's amazing about this is once we have freedom and can get a little more uh, less regulated than we used to be, then we can ha- hash out these minor details, these minor disagreements. But things have gotten so oppressive, so Orwellian, that two people who totally disagree are both screaming, slow it down, go to the park, please. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the Orwellian thing is what disturbs me. And, um, you know, what is Orwellian to me is the fact that we're supposed to be under supervision all the time, and that parents are supposed to be sort of, you know, big brother to their children, that they're supposed to be tracking them all the time, and that a parent who lets their kid have any unsupervised time has automatically shown that they're not good because nobody deserves unsupervised time. Everybody must be monitored and watched all the time. So um, I guess Orwell just kicks me into my um, monitor speech. But (laughs) there, there is something bad about the idea that you can't go off the grid, that you can't be unsupervised. And while I would not spend my unsupervised youth um, shooting guns at my friends and running away on motorcycles like apparently you did, um, I still am glad that I had unsupervised time. And I believe in unsupervised time for kids online. I believe in unsupervised time for kids outside. Yes, and I agree with you. And I look forward to the day where kids are free and we can come back and argue about silly minutia like BB guns. That sounds good. Thanks for coming, Lenore. (laughs) Thank you. And thank you, folks at home. Whoever you are.